you know, how did you get to where you are today? You have some history with uh, sourcing, but you are now a help companies, individuals to to elevate the experience and their skill set around negotiation. So, but yeah. before we get started, you know, walk me through like the the, the set of, of forks in the road that you had to pick throughout the uh, the past several years. Sure, sure. And hopefully that will also set it up for um, you know, the value that we produce. So I, um, I graduated university with a degree in engineering, and I couldn't find a job as an engineer at that time. So if I couldn't be an engineer, my next favorite profession was to be in sales. My grandfather was in sales. He always had a nice new car, didn't work a lot of Fridays, played a lot of golf. You know, the, the life of a, of a salesperson, right? So um, I joined a company called Kenmar. Now, Kenmar is a manufacturer's rep company. They're, all they do is sales. They produce nothing except for, for value to the customer. They represent companies from around the world that were selling products into Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors, some fairly large, sophisticated purchasing organizations. And I did that job for about three years before I realized that I was average. And as, you know, nobody wants to be average. I didn't want to be average either. So as an engineer, the little voice in my head said, you should get some data. You should understand why you're just average amongst your peer group. So I, I developed a survey. And I passed it out to all my peers. And, and when the survey results came back, I was really disappointed in my own survey because there was only one common data point across all the careers of all these world-class sellers. And the common data point was this. They had all been in purchasing before they went into sales. And that didn't make sense to me. So I went to my boss and I said, hey, you know the survey? And he rolled his eyes. And he said, oh, I've heard all about the survey. I said, well, do you know that everybody here has been in purchasing before they went into sales? And he said, Duh, I could have told you that before the survey. And I said, well, not, not duh. Why is, that, why is that critical to be a great salesperson, to have a background in purchasing? And he said, it's because we understand the other side's sheet of paper. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, okay, let me, let me explain it to you this way. We understand when we have a relationship with the end user community, with the decision makers, um, when we have um, the only capability or capacity, or we're one of very few suppliers who can actually produce the part to the spec they need. And on those deals, we, we uh, deliver, we, um, we work to close the deals at high margin, because that's what we're paid to do. And on the other side, we understand if we're the third bidder, fourth bidder, eighth bidder, if we're, if we're dare I say, a commodity, if we, we have no real strategic advantage. And on those deals, we're still professional. We're still polite. We're still working to build a relationship. But he said, Mike, I've noticed you, um, you come in early and you stay late. And this was my technology use at the time. He said, I, I had the fax machine programmed to dial my beeper when a quote came in so that I could hurry up and quote it. He said, Mike, you're working really hard, but you're not working really smart. Because if you could figure out when you don't have the deal, you could lose fast and get some of your time back. And I said, you're right. It would be fascinating to know, very valuable, when I probably had the order and when I probably didn't, and then I could prioritize my day differently. How do I know? And he said, well, you know, you're a smart guy. Eight or 10 years in sales, you'll probably figure it out. Or I know a purchasing manager over at General Motors. They're hiring buyers right now. If you'd like, I could put your resume in front of them. And I said, well, if I was a buyer, how long would it take me to figure out? And he said, ah, pfft. You're two tops. You definitely figured it out. And the little voice in my head said, that sounds efficient. Eight or 10 years in sales, maybe figure it out. One or two years in purchasing, definitely figure it out. Would you please make the phone call for me? So here's the vice president of sales, takes his young protege, 
And he actually gets me a job at General Motors purchasing. Now, most people think he did it to help himself, selfishly. But the truth of it is he did it out of the kindness of his heart to help me. In fact, we put up a firewall. We would never negotiate against each other because of our former relationship. So when I went from sales working really hard but not very smart into a purchasing role, and this is no disrespect to the purchasing profession, but the first six months of General Motors, this was my job. I could turn my brain off half the day. I would um, I'd work with manufacturing, engineering, quality, uh, marketing. I would gather the specifications, put together a bid package. I would send it out to suppliers, and then I'd play Mahjong on solitaire on my computer. Those are the only games our Microsoft let us have at the time. Um, I, you know, I go to meetings and things like that, but, but really, I'm just playing Mahjong on solitaire, killing time. The quotes come back in. They start stacking up on my desk. I'm playing Mahjong and Solitaire. The due date hits. Mahjong Solitaire. Then I'd get a phone call from one of the suppliers, and the phone call would go like this. They'd, uh, they'd say um, in a stressed voice, hey, Mike, uh, we, um, we submitted our bid, and uh, we were just wondering, how do we look? Without even looking at their bid, I would say, are you kidding me? You're way too high. Click. Back to Mahjong and Solitaire. Later that day, maybe the next day, I'd get a phone call and it would go like this. They'd say, uh, hey, Mike, uh, you were you were right. We uh, we sharpened the pencil. Uh, we can take 8% off. How does an 8% discount sound? Without even looking at the bid, I would say 8%. Look, if you're serious, you've got to be double digits. Click back to Mahjong and Solitaire. Or I would um, I'd call a meeting with supplier I had no intention of doing business with. Weak, desperate supplier. And I would take, 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 take. Then I would call a meeting with supplier that I really wanted to do business with. And I would say, um, I've met with your competition. Uh, I've already got all this stuff from them. I'd cover the name because that would be unethical. Um, I've already got all the stuff from them. If you can't beat this deal, you're going to lose this order. And I was really good at it because I knew how to manipulate the other side sheet of paper, the salespeople, because I was one. Here's the problem. That type of negotiating is not sustainable. And it's, it, it's, you know, morals and ethics aside, it's not sustainable. General Motors drove hundreds, if not thousands of suppliers out of business with those type of business practices. So after about six months, I woke up one day and I said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I don't feel good about myself. I'm they were, Mike, they were also notorious about the, um, you know, how long it takes to, to get paid, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was like, I think we, we called it MNS2 pricing, which was basically... Uh, 45 days was the earliest you'd get paid, and it might be up to 90, it, you know, unless there was a problem, and that invoice would get lost. But let me let me finish out the story. So so I decided I'm better than that, and I decided to to study negotiations. So I read books, took classes like the one I now teach, and from that point forward, I went from a buyer to a manager to a director in the GM system. Then I moved over to America West Airlines, where I had all the indirect, all the non-aircraft spend. Um, from that point, by the way, America West is now American Airlines through acquisition. Um, from there, I moved to a company called IAC Interactive Corp. And, and IAC is Barry Diller's holding company in New York that, that owned at the time Expedia, Match.com, Home Shopping Network, Ticketmaster, industry-leading companies. And, and my job as a head of, of purchasing there was to get all these companies to negotiate internally together and then go negotiate with our supply base with one voice. And my last job before joining Table Force was with a company called MGM Resorts International, which is the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. It's Mandalay Bay, Luxor, Excalibur, New York, New York, Monte Carlo, half a city center, Bellagio, Mirage, 50,000 hotel rooms on the Strip, where I had all the indirect spend there. When you negotiate properly, it doesn't really matter the industry you're in. 
You can build better relationships, get better quality, have it faster, and better total cost of ownership if you negotiate properly. And that's what I've really enjoyed doing for the last 12 years is working with different people. Uh, I've been on six continents in uh, more than 30 countries teaching negotiation. So I, I get to learn and then apply what I know to different situations. And, uh, and I love what I do that my passion hasn't come across already. Um, and that's how I got here today. And, and I hope to continue to grow my skill set and, uh, and give back to the next generation and, and our customers as well. You know, it's so interesting. And I love your background. It's, it truly is uh, fascinating. And I can see, you know, why you're very successful. You've, you know, you have such a hands-on experience. Um, and it's amazing that you dealt with the, with the issue in a very engineering mindset. <laughs> so, so you took it and, you know, crunched numbers and figure out what, what path you should take. And what's interesting is that we, we seem to be negotiating in our day-to-day lives, you know, starting from a very young age, saying, okay, can I, can I have this toy in the sandbox over this one? I'll give you this one. So why are we not more successful if we've been doing this for years in our personal lives as well as potentially in our, you know, professional life and personal life? Sure. And, and uh, I don't, you haven't sat through the class, but that's actually, that's what we talk about. The It's a two-day class. When we do it in person in the, 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 first half of day one, we talk about personal negotiations. And one of the tenants is children are fantastic negotiators. It's born in us. Um, I did a session in Dubai and I don't like to stereotype, but, but there are trends to look for. People in the Middle East are, are known to be shrewd negotiators. And uh, I said, Hey, everybody, um, who's got kids in the room? And, and half the room raised their hands. And I said, are kids good negotiators? And they all said, Oh, they're, oh, they're way better than we are. And I said, well, manipulators as well, Mike. Well, yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of, ch- yeah, they're, they're manipulators. They're, they're really good at it. But the point is negotiations are in all of us around the world globally. It's, it's a common skill set that we have as children. And it gets beaten out of us over time. Different cultures beat it out at different rates. But, you know, in the States, we'll, um, we'll say, come on, be reasonable. Stop asking. I said no. And then when they turn 18, we say, okay, now go be successful. And we've, the parents, especially on the Western world, have beaten out that skill set from the children, which, which now we, Table Force, have to teach. Now, children are shrewd negotiators. They're manipulators. You know, they use emotion to, or, or they'll, uh, here's the example I always use. Um, there's two parents in, in our household. And uh, when my children come to me and they say, hey, dad, can we? I always ask the same question. What did mom say? And they always say the same thing. They say, mom said yes. And I always ask the same, always do the same thing after that. I go check, right? Because my children are liars. (laughs) I love them. I would say trust but verify. They will lie. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, And there's another saying, um, you know, that saying, don't make assumptions because it makes an A-double-S out of you and me. I say wrong. We should make assumptions, but we should we should verify those assumptions. So we have to ask great questions. So I always have to check on my children to make sure they're telling me the truth at the time. But yeah, d- children are, are great at a certain type of negotiation, which is really getting what they want out of, yeah, a, and, out of a situation. And, and it's so interesting that, you know, again, when you, when you get your first job, you have to negotiate your salary, you have to negotiate your terms, and then there's constant negotiation, even negotiating, you know, when can you take a day off? You know, from your, you know, from, I mean, it's just this constant negotiation on a regular basis, but yet we're not, and this is a question I'll ask you, 
we are less than perfect at it. You know, and one one reason is you mentioned we get beat, you know, get this beaten out, out of us. But is is there any other underlying reasoning why we're sure. not better at this? Um, fear, for either fear of not getting what you ask for, or fear of not being liked. You know, what I tell people is, as a negotiator, um, I'm building a relationship through the negotiation process. It, and the problem, especially in the West, is um, as we see negotiations on television, political negotiations, where you know, one side wins and one side loses and it's, it makes the headlines, that's a sign of bad negotiations. We, we should be trying to actually build this relationship and making one plus one equal three. I get my one, you get you your one. But if we do it properly, we can actually produce value for both sides. So I, I think there's this and there's also a fear of not wanting to sound unreasonable, um, not wanting people to hate us because, you know, we dare to ask for something outside the norm. You know, what I tell people is there's no rule that says you can't say to the other side, I'm reviewing your offer. And I like it. It's a good offer. But I'm looking for a great offer. Is there anything you can add? And, and then I tell people, be quiet. Let the other side give you an answer. And, and they, either they're going to say, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's the, that is the best offer. That, that's, that's the best and final. I, 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 if you can get it better from somewhere else, God bless you. Or they might say, well, sure. What, maybe I can give you an extra vacation week. Maybe I can let you pick your days. Maybe I can let you pick your hours. There's there's things on the other side sheet of paper that that they might not even consider until someone challenges them to do a little better. So I think we have to challenge each other to do that. And what I tell people as a negotiator is I can do better if you can do better. There, there's always a way to improve this deal. I guess now, it's the exception when you can't improve the deal. Now, I've seen that technology trying to help out. Like, you know, for example, there are you know, car sites that tell you, okay, you know, here's the, you know, here's the number and you know where I'm going with this. Here's the price. So you car the car, so you don't have to negotiate when you get to the car dealership because you already know. Yeah. But it's still, even with that, with all the technology, all the, the quote unquote available information out there, because supposedly, you know, everything, you know, we kind of know what the price is and we know what the terms are because we can, you know, kind of compare that because information is available, but that still does not, provide everything we need to, to, you know, to get a great deal, right? I, I would agree with that. And uh, here's what I want to say about, about negotiating your personal life and car deals. First of all, all the information that, that you read, the consumer reads, the car dealership reads it too. Um, so, so, so they have the same information. Uh, sometimes they have planted that information, right? It's, it's, it's misinformation, if anything. Um, you cannot beat a car dealer, a car salesperson. They, they negotiate five deals a day. They go to regular training. They have a pre-shift meeting. They know what's on their sheet of paper, and they know when you're there. They know how to read you. So you're not going to beat a car dealer in a negotiation. The best you can hope for, if you're a good negotiator, is to get a better deal than your neighbor, right? Because it's all a relative game, right? How many, how many dollars we have in our pocket at the end of the week, end of the year, end of our career, tells us what, what kind of lake house we get, what kind of boat we get in retirement, what, what type of retirement you have. So it's about getting, getting better deals than your peer group, if you will. Um, and I'll, I'll say this about uh, car negotiations. Timing is critical. Right now, you will not get a good deal on a car because there's no supply out there, and they know that. 
and they're, they're jacking up the price. So again, you may get a better deal than your neighbor, but you're going to pay a premium if you want a car right now. Now, if you can wait till there is inventory, till the market does shift, if you can you know, keep your, your used car in good repair for another year, maybe, then sure, you can get a better deal then. T- timing of the market is really critical when it comes to negotiating. And that applies to business as well as personal. And, and Mike, talk to me a bit about the kind of the training. You mentioned it's two days. And so let me ask you kind of a set of questions. And we'll start with who is it for? You're like who is the best kind of fit for for this? And and sure. then the so, second so question our, to our that. Businesses, yeah. And the second ahead, question, just a leading question to that would be, what's the outcome? You know, once you're going to go through the, the sessions, uh, you know, what's the outcome after that? Okay, so so as a business breakdown, it is our business is the eighty twenty rule. Eighty percent of what we do is teaching, and the other twenty percent is actually at the table negotiating. So so you mentioned my background. Everyone who works at Table Force is a real world negotiator. We are we are not trainers and facilitators and learning management specialists. We are negotiators who've learned how to transfer our knowledge. We we study that, but at our core, we are negotiators. So, of the eighty percent of training that we do, there's an eighty twenty in there. 80% of it is sales teams between a 20-person sales team and a 2,000-person sales team. And, and the other 20% is with purchasing organizations primarily um, who, who have 20 to 200 buyers who need to be trained to negotiate better. Um, now, the outcome you ask for. Um, here's what we've seen. When, I, when we're teaching sellers, salespeople by nature want to be pleasers. If you said to a salesperson, make a list of things it will take to close the deal, they'll say, well, I need to give them a discount, and I need to give them an upgrade, and I need to give them better payment terms, and I need to give them better service and a better warranty. And don't forget, free support for one year. Right, free support. Their mindset is, I am a salesperson. I am here to give things away. Now, we teach a salesperson to say, hey, listen, I can absolutely do better on price, but I need better payment terms. I can do this if you can do that. And to to trade concessions in that. If you're going to give value, get something in return. And it might not be financial. It might be, um, I need a letter of reference from you. If I give you better terms and I give you better pricing, better terms, better warranty, um, and uh, better delivery, I need to have an introduction to your sister division so that I can can grow my business. So salespeople, we have to teach them to, to find that if. If I do this, I need something from you in return. Now, on the purchasing side, buyers tend to focus on price way too much when they really should look at specifications and total cost of ownership. You know, if if you can move the delivery date to when it's convenient for the supplier, maybe you can reduce your shipping cost. But you got to be willing to look at those specifications and negotiate over them to to look at negotiations a little bit differently. I, as a as a. uh, as a junior buyer, I wanted to have a really low price, and that drove suppliers out of business. Or if they would go low, they would um, they would eventually short me somewhere, somehow, either quality or products. There would be a problem, and it's a future unknown. It's a future risk. Those are the worst kinds to have, where you don't know when it's coming, you don't know where it's coming, you don't know what's coming. You lose sleep at night. When I evolved in my career, I learned to say to the supplier, I want you to make money. In fact, there were suppliers I sent home saying, review your bid because I think you missed something. I, I wouldn't tell them improve your prices by 20% or increase your prices 20%. You know, I, I can't manage their business 
that much for them. But I can say to them, I, I think you missed something. Go back and re-review the numbers. Rerun this because I want you to make money. Now, I don't want them popping champagne corks. But, you know, if a supplier's average margin is 28%, I don't want to pay 42. But I also don't want to pay 12 or 9 or 8. I, I, I want their number to be a, the number they're happy with. So that when I call after hours, when I call on the weekend, when I need a special favor, they, they value me as a customer and want to do it. But, but you got to get buyers' minds thinking a little bit differently about that negotiation. Now, how do you do with, deal with the fact that they, you know, every deal is different, you know, mm-hmm. and you can tell that from, from people that have been doing this for years, you know, it's this, the buyer uh, persona is different. The transactions may, may, may or may not look the same. The economic environment may or may not look the same. There's just so many variables that are out of your control. So where does negotiations and the art of negotiation that you teach come into play when there are just so many external factors that are out of your control? Sure. That's a great question. So here's what I tell everybody. Negotiations are situational. The person on the other side, the situation they're in, the situation you're in, timing, um, look at the market. You know, we, we all of a sudden, it, it COVID hit, and, and now prices are going through the roof, but we're already seeing that's coming back down in certain cases. For a while, there wood couldn't get it. It went up 3x, 4x, 5x. Now, all of a sudden, wood prices have come back down. So every market's a little bit different. What I, what I tell people is I need you to be a carpenter. You know, if, if you are a, um, if you're going to build a house and all you have is a hammer, that's going to be a funny looking house. So, so when we teach our two-day class, we talk about lots of different techniques and, and tools to use, and it's situational. So first of all, you got to be good at using lots of different tools and techniques and picking the right tool for the situation. And it's not always the same, and it's not always your favorite. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. But I, I tell people this is a life lesson, not a negotiation lesson. Um, get comfortable being uncomfortable, but sharpening your saw, trying new skill sets to new situations. And you'll, you'll be a better, more well-rounded person if you do that. Yeah. And, and what causes, you know, there's, there's always this friction associated with, with, it seems like not just the negotiation, but the whole sales process. It seems like the salespeople sometimes are reluctant to say that they're even in sales. And then the buyers, especially depending on what industry, there seems to be like this, you know, oh, we don't want to talk to yet another salesperson. You know, what do you think is causing this? Do you think it's the fact that they they are lacking the skill set associated with, with prior, you know, proper negotiation that causes that friction? So again, I don't like to stereotype. I'm going to talk in generals though. The, the, the sales profession, there's certain professions that have, that get a bad rap. Now I've met a lot of really good salespeople, but the bad salespeople spoil it for the good salespeople. Um, they're in there being selfish can I get the order today? I got to make my numbers. I want to sell this person something. And then there's an old saying around the world. How do you know when a salesperson's lying? Their lips are moving, right? So salespeople, as people pleasers, will say yes to anything the buyer asks for. And then they, they, go, they go back to their team and they go, hey, we got to figure this out. I said yes to the buyer. I mean, for the salespeople who are listening, as a purchasing person, here's what I evolved to. When a salesperson would dare tell me no, I can't do that. Mike, you don't want that. 
not something my company does. I'll introduce you to somebody else, but no. The little voice in my head would say, wow, that salesperson told me no. Damn. I got to trust them because they weren't just trying to sell me stuff. They were giving me more honest advice. Now, their opinion could be wrong, but I would listen to them more carefully if they dared tell me no. Because there's so many salespeople who just say yes. So that's some of my coaching out there. Now, I'm not, I'm not asking salespeople to manufacture situations where you say no. But I'm saying if, if salespeople can be more honest, they'll, they'll actually earn the trust of the buying community. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would ask um, as well, in terms of, you know, there are so many sales books out there, you know, where they teach uh, you know, the art of selling, you know, like the alternate clothes, the, the compelling reasons there. I mean, it's just so many of them. Do you, do you side with any, you know, specific methodology, like in terms of, of, you know, even like, you know, selling by asking questions, for example, mm-hmm. it is so many of these, would you like, is that part of, negotiation like because selling is negotiating eventually but do you uh, do you side with any of these um, methodologies or do you just say okay it's whatever works for you yeah i'm, I'm gonna side with with the methodology that says asking questions and then being quiet listening for the answer i think is a really important thing um being willing to say, well, that's not the solution we can really provide for you, or that's not that's not the right solution. If, if I were in your role, I would do something a little bit differently, and here's why. Um, I, I think that's a good thing to, to earn credibility and trust. Um, I've also heard about methodologies in sales that say if, if you've sold well enough, you don't have to negotiate. Sure. But I like to look at it this way. If you sold well enough, you've missed an opportunity to negotiate. Because negotiations doesn't have to be, I win, you lose. Negotiations can absolutely be, how do we move the delivery date? How do we move the warranty? How do we, how do we move something from my sheet of paper to your sheet of paper or vice versa so that we can both benefit? It's not just a take it or leave it. Ha ha, we won. It's a, here's our sheet of paper. How do we craft this so we're both even happier with the eventual deal? Now, I'm not saying negotiate forever. But you should be negotiating two or three or four important terms or conditions with the other side and actually feel good about it at the end. And, uh, you know, I heard somewhere that, you know, you know, transaction is, is great when no one is really, you know, super happy. <laughs> I know? think I know where you go. Yeah. When both sides are kind of like, eh. Is that true? <laughs> so some of that has to do with emotional manipulation. Um, let me give you an example. Um, one of the things we teach is called the power of no. So I was negotiating a, a $100 million print deal for IAC. We had RRD was the, the company that um, was negotiating with us. Uh, they had 10 print experts, and we had 10 business leads in a room down at Home Shopping Network. Um, Bob Nelson was their president. Bob is giving a passionate, persuasive speech about why we should award them the business. Now, what Bob didn't know is we had already decided they were getting the business. So Bob says, and by the way, not only are we great today, but we're going to be great in the future because we've rolled out a Six Sigma initiative. Now, 
I'm a Six Sigma expert, trained, certified, and I know that when there's a Six Sigma process put in place, usually there's a cost savings associated. So I stopped him and I said, Bob, when I hear you say Six Sigma, I'm assuming there's a cost savings. And he said, yes. And I said, is it 6%? Is that your target? And he said, as a matter of fact, it is 6%. And I said, I want half of that back every year in a rebate. And Bob said, done. Yes. Now, 6% on $100 million is $6 million. So half of that, $3 million just changed hands in 15 seconds. Why did Bob want to, why did Bob say yes to me? How did he make me want to feel, good or bad? I'm assuming good. Yeah, yeah, that's a great assumption. He wanted to make me feel good. But what I tell people is, how did I really feel? Excellent. Let me let me go let me go back in time. Well, my boss was ecstatic. He was in the room, and I had to kick him under the table because because we'd already picked our Donnelly. We just got three million dollars. Let me let me reset the the video. Let's go back in time. He says six sigma. I say, is there a cost savings? He says yes. I say, is it six percent? He says yes, and I say I want half. But this time, what if Bob said? do you realize you just asked me for $3 million at this late stage of a negotiation? And I would have said, uh-huh. You know, and he would have said, Mike, listen, I love your ask, buddy, but there's nowhere near $3 million baked in numbers. Um, out of respect for your position, I'll call our CEO. And I would have said, there's a conference room across the hall. Go call the CEO. And he would have stepped outside and came back in and said, our CEO is in France. I need until tomorrow morning. And I would have said, for $3 million, you're going to have until tomorrow morning. And he would have said, Mike, Mike, please. And in the morning, we would have met at Starbucks because that's what we, you know, business people do. And uh, he would have said, listen, uh, as expected, there's nowhere near $3 million. We, we can offer you 500000 if we stop negotiating now and start to integrate our teams. And I would have said, 500000 How about a million? And we would have settled around 750000 And I would tell the story about how I worked hard and I went all the way to the CEO to get 750000 And instead, I tell the story about how we got $3 million in 15 seconds. And I'm unsatisfied now. So that's part of that. Making the other side feel a certain way. And there's a certain level of planning and sophisticated thought that has to go into that. Now, I'm not asking people to manipulate and and wait a day and stage a lot of stuff. But what I am saying is this. If the, if this, if the buyer says, let's, let's say the, the bid the seller quoted 100 and the buyer says, hundred, you're out of your mind. I, I could, the most I could pay is 95. And, and let's just say that the seller, your bottom line is 92. So when the buyer asks for 95, the seller can go to 92. Instead of the seller saying, okay, absolutely, 95. Can I have the purchase order? If the seller would just say, give me a moment to check with myself. Take a bio break. Come back in two minutes later and say, 95. If you write us a letter of recommendation, the buyer will actually feel better getting the 95 and giving the letter of recommendation than just getting the 95 with a happy seller. So, so part of the, the art of the deal is, is learning to use emotional IQ or that emotional question to, to make the other side feel good about the deal. And it's, so, an, it's an amazing story, Mike. And, and, I would add to that, that people often remember, you know, they don't remember what you said, but they do remember what, how you made them feel. That, that's brilliant. I, um, I had that discussion with, uh, with my boss, our, our founder and uh, majority owner. He, uh, we, we did a class for somebody um, before I joined the company. 
So this is like 15 years ago, I did the class. About five years ago, the client called and said, hey, listen, we, we need to refresh and sharpen the saw. And he said, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. Our material is so much better today than it was when I first did the class. We've developed so much more. When they see me, they're going to think, oh my gosh, that original stuff, he really took us for a ride. And I said, Bill, they have no idea. They don't remember anything you taught them. All they remember is how you made them feel. And by the way, there's continuous improvement. So it's okay to have better stuff today than you did 15 years ago. But I, I think you're dead on, David. It, it, people, people remember that emotional thing. And I think we as human beings need to need to be kinder to each other and, and respect that emotion that the other side needs to feel and go through. Yeah, absolutely. And let me ask you this. So I'm on the sideline. I know that I need this. There's no questions about this. It can improve everyone's um, bottom line and so on. How would I, if I'm, you know, a sales manager or somebody who's responsible for potentially you know, getting your, your course and services, how would I go about justifying this and showing some sort of ROI or, or going to the powers of B and say, listen, we need this, this is how much it's going to cost, but this is what we're getting. Got it. So I'm going to speak as a former client, someone who hired table force to come in and teach my purchasing teams. And I'm going to speak for somebody who sees this. Um, we're not going to overstate. I don't see it in every class, but I see it in every third class. I see a specific example. The return on investment is immediate. Someone in the class, by the end of day two, sometimes by the end of day one, will will come up with a negotiation that pays for the entire class in their first negotiation. We had one one customer that is a Six Sigma shop. They they measure everything, and um, they they wanted a measurement tool. So we helped them develop how to measure the return on the investment, and. The first deals that came in all 10x'd the price of the class. So they stopped measuring because, because it was so obvious that the return on investment is there. So the good news, there's a lot of training that, that has this soft, uh, you, you know it's valuable, you just don't know how valuable. Um, compliance training, uh, safety training, um, integrity training, there's absolutely value there. But if somebody says, what's, what's the value in integrity training? Is it, did you get 10,000 back? Did you get 100,000 back? Did you get a million back? What, what is it? It's tough to put a number on it. But when, when a salesperson who is used to closing deals at 18% margin closes their next deal at 24% margin, you take the six and you say that's attributable to that class right there. So, so we have a lot of letters of reference um, that speak to that. We've got customers, we've got LinkedIn people who will absolutely say, oh yeah, the ROI is immediate. It's the first deal you do. And I suspect that there's this other residual benefits, for example, the fact that the employees feel that they're, you know, the company's made an investment into yeah. them being more successful. I'm assuming that it allows them to be more successful and then in turn, there's less churn in the, you know, sales teams because they're, right they may hit the numbers better. I mean, there's so many things that will trickle down and, and we know what the costs are to hire yet another person to right. fill a role because the previous person did not, you know, hit their numbers. Sure. So there's a lot of that going on, right? Well, and I, um, so, so here's the way I start off every class. Um, I say, listen, your company is investing in you. Uh, and typically a senior executive will kick us off. 
So I will say that senior executive is investing in you. This company is investing in you. They care about you. By the way, you are spending two days of your time with me. That's 1% of most people's year. So, so I expect not only is there a financial return for the company, but that there is a, a personal return for everybody in the class. And what I, what I normally tell them is, look, don't think you're going to go negotiate with your boss and just, you know, beat your boss up because your boss has been through this too. But, but, you know, maybe you can have a better life. Maybe you can have lower costs. Um, my boss plays a thing called the free car game. I ask everybody, anybody want a free car? And they all raise their hands and I go, of course you want a free car, but your boss isn't going to give you a free car. I'm going to give you the tools and techniques to get a free car. And, and we talk about these personal negotiations. Again, this is the morning of day one about how they can, they can actually put money in their pocket by being a better negotiator. Studies show that the average person has four to five opportunities to negotiate every day and they miss them because they're not paying attention. They're just going through life the blinders on, paying the standard retail price, not asking, can the other side do better? And, you know, I've talked about price, but, but let me give you an example of something that's non-price that has huge value. So when we go out to dinner, um, my wife, she, she does not like to negotiate. She does not like to be around me negotiating. I get it. Um, she has made it very clear that I am not allowed to negotiate over the price of our meal. She's worked in at the back of the house. She's worked as a waitress. So, so she knows she's like, don't bother those people. So when we check in at the host stand, the host or hostess will always give a binary choice. Um, do you want to sit inside or outside? Do you want the bar or do you want the restaurant? Do you want the, the uh, booth or do you want the table? There, there's, there's a choice there. And I always say the same thing. I want to sit with your best server. And they always look at me kind of funny. They go, huh? And I go, you know, I, I don't want the trainee. I don't want the new server. I want the Oh, the, the waitress, the waiter that trains all the other staff, because if I'm going to pay full price and my wife has made it very clear that I am, I want the best experience possible. But see, that's when you expand past price. There's lots of opportunities to negotiate and get value in our lives if we're just paying a little more attention. I love that. And I, I'll have to steal that from you. Please, like, steal your permission. Absolutely. The world needs to be a better place. We all need to get more value. <laughs> um, and at the end, you know, how do you know that the people that are, you know, leaving the course are going to be successful? I'm assuming they all come from, you know, various walks of life, yep. different backgrounds and so on. You know, how do you measure the successful completion? Is there a... Do you do like a mock-up negotiations? Do you run through some scenarios? Um, you know, what's that look like? And then maybe if you come out and is there like a, a continuation? Is there like a, you know, like a, a next course that they can they can take to become, to even elevate those those skill sets? Sure. So there, there's multiple answers to your question. And I just reached down to pick up one of them. Uh, first of all, there is actual um, role plays that we do. We do a an easy personal negotiation, then we do an easy business negotiation, then we do two complex, growing in complexity business negotiations. So they actually get to um, see how they do. And it's fascinating to me as um, as the instructor will go around the room to start and some, some people will say, um, I'm not very good at negotiating. I, I don't know a lot about this stuff. I'm really glad that I'm here and I'm, I'm a little concerned that I won't do very well. And they'll actually do really well in a negotiation. Or I'll get the people who kind of sit back like, I, what's this guy going to teach me? And, and they'll actually do poorly because they'll get steamrolled by someone who's actually paying attention. 
So, so we, um, we have what we call a safe learning environment. Uh, at the end of, of the role plays, all the information is on the board so people get to see how they did compared to everybody else. We go through the sheets of paper so, so they can understand what was really on, the, on their counterparts sheet because a lot of times people lie to each other. And then I say this, if, uh, if you want to take credit for something do, you did well, let's talk about it. If you want to give credit to the other side on something they did well, we should talk about that. Build some some esteem on the other side. If you have failed at something personally in that last negotiation, I love people whose confidence will allow them to say, hey, I made a mistake. Because I think we can all learn from that. But if your counterpart in the negotiation did poorly, do not talk about it publicly. I, I want to protect the egos. But what I tell people is this. Everyone deserves to know if they have spinach on their teeth. Find your partner at the next break, at lunch, at dinner. When I'm gone and tell them what they need to know, that personal one-to-one coaching, but protect their ego in public. So, so there's that, that part of the process. Then at the end, we have uh, reached down here to get um, our anonymous feedback forms. There's no names on them, but, and it's a short survey. It, it takes less than two minutes to fill out. Um, ask them, would they refer to somebody else? And would they, would, would they want to take our second class? The, the follow-on class. So you ask about the follow-on class. Yes, there's an advanced class that we also teach. There's, there's multiple subsets of negotiation. We have one that's just about price increases for the sales side, how to get them, and the buy side, how to defend against them. So we've got a lot of, all we do is negotiations. In fact, we've had clients ask us to do other um, sales management, customer relationship management. We always say, no, we don't do that. And they say, please, we like you. And we say, no, that's not what we're good at. So, so we stay in our sandbox, which is negotiations. But yeah, we get feedback. I'll, I'll give you an example. I got some, some bad feedback recently. Um, I, I told a story that I've told for 12 years. And um, in it, I ask the, uh, the cashier to speak to the manager. Because what I tell people is n- never take a no from someone not empowered to say yes. And in this situation, I, I happen to know that the cashier had no power. So I wanted to get to the manager. In the feedback form, a comment came back that... Uh, that I had treated the cashier poorly, and the words they used were, it was dehumanizing for me to go around the cashier, not give them the opportunity to try to negotiate. Now, the voice in my head at first said, you're out of your mind, dehumanizing. I mean, have you, do you, have you studied world history? Humans are horrible to each other. All I did was get out of that cashier's way and try to, get to, try to be efficient. But see, what I learned was not everybody thinks the same way. Right. I, I offended somebody when I told that story. So how many more of those people are out there? I, I don't know. And my, my intent is not to offend people. I, you know, I, we, we can't we can't not offend everybody. But but I, my, my goal is not to go out and, and be offensive and, and, you know, create a war. But I learned that maybe that person was a cashier and maybe somebody went around them and maybe they didn't have a good experience. And that that took them back to that time and they had a, they had a poor experience in the class. So it happens. Um, but for the most part, we get our feedback forms. We, we, uh, we take them seriously and, um, and we continuously improve the class based on that. Mike, I still think that it's, it's sound advice to, to get straight to the person who can make a decision regardless. Um, here's one of of our partners early on. I I got, um, here's another piece of bad feedback. Somebody said that Mike guy, he was a used car salesman. And, and I still remember to this, this was 10 years ago. I remember to this day and, and what uh, we, we've lost a partner to cancer and, uh, and Mark, he gave me some coaching and he said, Mike, listen, if there were 10 reviews that said that 
you got a problem. One data point across a thousand people, don't worry about it. Somebody had a bad day. You didn't resonate with them. Let it go. So, so I think we can consider other sides' perspectives and not let it, you know, I didn't lose sleep over it, but I thought I, it made me think, I guess is what I want to say. And, and that's part of being a, yeah. an educator is how can I be better? Yeah, it makes, it makes total sense. So what's the easiest way for people to reach out to you to learn more? Um, you know, we, we, you know, I appreciate the time you took. And I, I think that people definitely got the sense of, of who you are, what the course is all about, you know, what are kind of the benefits associated with taking it and what's the outcome. So we covered all of that, which is phenomenal. What's the easiest way for people to reach out to you? So it's super simple. We, we own the domain negotiationtraining.com. That's, that's how important it is to it's all we do, really, is we stay in that space. So negotiationtraining.com, and there's a contact us button, uh, or they can reach out to me directly at mike at tableforce.com. So if if I have a big deal, would would you be a, Absolutely. a negotiator Absolutely. We, we consult for on hire? deals. Our, uh, our fees are reasonable. Um, I, I do want to say this. It's a, it's a different dynamic when I come in as the lead negotiator or do the negotiating myself, the other side is likely to research. And when, when a negotiator walks in the room, the other side goes, uh-oh. So sometimes it's better if the coaching is behind the scenes or, um, or if a client will say, they'll say things just like, uh, hey, this is Mike, he's, he's, uh, he just joined the team. And then be quiet. And I'll be the note taker. And all I'm doing is paying attention to the dynamics of what's going on. And if, uh, if necessary, I'll say, hey, can we, can we take a bio break? I, I got to go outside. And I'll, I'll give them some coaching like in the moment. Um, I'll make sure they're always prepared before the negotiation. But I, I like to have our clients actually doing the negotiating themselves because they learn more that way. That They're better negotiators. And that's my ultimate end goal. Mike, it's been a real fascinating, and I learned a lot Good. as well. Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, to chat today, and uh, I'm looking forward to potentially even taking the course myself. Absolutely. Like, listen, this is, sounds it sounds absolutely great, and uh, as much as I think that I've you know that I've dealt with negotiation, my you know my my career and my personal life. I think there's always a lot to learn, and uh, especially for somebody as professional as you are and as, uh, as experienced as you are. So thank you for that. Good. Much appreciated. David, thank you for your time and the great questions. I, I really, really appreciate it.